I was going to ask you the same yeah. thing. Are you ready to go, Han? Yeah. Fantastic. Welcome to Shit Happens When You Party Naked, motherfuckers. I am your host, Jason Almy. I got my co-host, as well as my beautiful wife beside me. Baby mama. And my future baby mama, I'm happy to say, without a bleep. No bleep. I can finally introduce you, without a bleep, as my future baby mama, my pregnant mother-to-be wife, Christina Almy. What's up, baby? Hey. Besides being pregnant and shit, what's up? Doing good. My belly is a little bloated because we just ate a lot of food. And since being pregnant, it does pop a little bit more. So it's like a real thing, the food baby. I was actually surprised how many people said congratulations to Mm -hmm. me after the Fuck 2018 episode because- We weren't so subtle. Yeah. Apparently bleeping out the word pregnant wasn't enough to keep it a secret. They're congratulating you for finally being a man. Yeah, I've heard a lot of that lately. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up again. I'm, you're I've heard a lot of like, hey, finally, and um, are you sure you're the dad? And uh, <laughs> a lot of fun stuff. The DNA test will tell, y'all. We'll have an update on, on the program in On our August. paternity test. Yeah, we'll do a, it'll be like our very own uh, Maury Povich show. It'll be like, you're not the daddy, and I'll get up and do the dance. You Are you going to have like a lineup of who you suspect the daddy is? We might have to like, we might have to like th- have three or four dudes in here. They're like, no, I'm the dad. No, I'm the dad. No, I'm the dad. And then they can't find my vagina. Why would they not be able to find your vagina? They're stupid. And I didn't fuck them, so. Yeah, I think that's kind of the point that, that I'm trying to drive at. That was like, the point. If there's a lineup of dudes claiming to be the dad, then we, we have a problem. In addition to the child's paternity, we have some maybe marital issues to work out. Thankfully, that's not. <laughs> thankfully, that's not the case. It's not the case. Thankfully, I, I fully and completely trust that I am, in fact, the father. Uh, I so, trust that, too. <laughs> solid. Unless it's like immaculate or something like that. Um, you know, I was raised Unless Catholic. Black. Blackulate? If the baby is black. Yeah. So or Chinese. Uh, that would be my... That would be my partial Chinese and partial black heredity. If you go back yep. far enough, I know Almi doesn't sound like an African Chinese name, but Almi is actually technically an African Chinese name. So. Is it? No, so we're, uh, not at all. It's a, <laughs> it's a straight up Norwegian name. So You're so funny. Yeah, my, uh, my ancestors are from the lily white land of Norway. I also got a lot of good feedback on our previous episode that I released the uh, slot bucket episode. A lot of people were saying how funny it was and also how disgusting it was. I think yeah. even you kind of thought that was a nasty episode. Yeah, I was having a um, especially sensitive pregnant morning where I felt nauseous hmm. and queasy at the thought of everything. And um, yeah, I was going to turn it back on to continue listening and I had to hold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, so, so my anti-nausea meds kicked in. The mental image of um, an Asian masseuse licking Elliot's jizz off of her hand was, was a little gross. Well, I hadn't gotten to that point yet. No, you hadn't. Okay, mm-hmm. well... You uh, guys were talking about 
like poop or something? There's something to look forward to. I'm sure we did not discuss poop. That's very gross. We would never talk about poop. But we have a bit of a change of pace in tonight's episode. I don't think there was any way that we were going to top that episode in terms of uh, the the comedy or the grossness. So uh, we're going to go sideways. We're, we're turning 180 degrees. We're going to go back in a different direction for this episode. Uh, we actually have a very interesting guest tonight that I'm really looking forward to talking to. Her name is Valerie Mason John. She's also known in Buddhist circles by the name Vimalasara, which is pretty interesting. I actually really like that name. It's a pretty kick-ass name. Maybe that can be the boy name. Maybe. Yeah, you think Vimalasara for a boy name? Call him V for short. We'll keep our eyes out on that. I'm looking forward to talking to this guest about issues that are maybe a little bit more serious. We've tackled before on this podcast, like when we had our buddy Scotty Mack on the show, we talked about things like his addiction and recovery, his past. It's kind of a heavy topic, so it's not something I want to have on like every single episode is this anti-addiction episode, but I think it is kind of important, and we do have people in our lives that are addiction and recovery folks, that it's an interest to them or that they work in that field. So uh, today is one of those episodes. Valerie, you know, she has a, a, a pretty colorful past, I guess. I don't want to oversell it. I don't want to undersell it. We're going to hear from her exactly the details of mm. her past and, and what she's been through to get to the point that she is. Some crazy stuff. I'm really looking forward to that. Is there anything that you're looking forward to as far as... Well, um, we haven't talked about this a lot on the show yet, but I myself went through recovery, which is how we found this lovely lady. So yes, yeah. So she was on... I went through hip sobriety when I stopped drinking, and she was a cool lady on there. So I'm interested to hear her story in general and just talk to her. You know, like I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but if there's anything over the course of this episode that you want to share about your experiences with that, I think you've done a really, really good job. And I think it's been really, really good for us to... I think it's been seven months. Seven months. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, a long time. It was a hard change. Yeah, it was a difficult... I mean, it was... It still is. Yeah. Particularly the... The, the culture that we kind of live in, maybe when you're in it, you don't really notice how prevalent alcohol is. When you take a step back, you really do start to realize like how it's just everywhere. And well, when you're trying to quit, yeah. then you realize yeah. how often you are presented with alcohol and how normal it is and how it's abnormal to not drink, yeah. which because I was always rolling with that, I was the person who would make comments to those who, people who weren't drinking, like, why? Yeah. That's so weird. It was in one of the books I read, or I'm reading, where they say alcohol is the only drug you have to explain why you don't partake in. But yeah. if it's something like Coke, nobody's going to be like, why don't you do Coke? But if you don't drink, they're like, why not? What's wrong? Like, is, do you have a problem? Yeah, like, <laughs> are you okay? Which I would ask that of people because I'd want them to drink with me. I'd be like, well, why don't you drink? That's so weird. I don't yeah, get it. Yeah, that's an odd thing. That's yeah. a norm. Yeah. So yeah, I look forward to, to just chatting with her. It's an important topic, I think. And I would say like Scotty Mack, he was, I think, one of the first, like when we had that episode, yeah. that was like a really, had a big impact on me. And I feel like that was where the wheels started to turn a little bit. Yeah. Like that it was possible when he had mentioned I love life like that just Mm -hmm. like blew my fucking mind and I'm like really that just is amazing to hear you say that and I think because I was in such a different place 
you know? And so that was like a little seed, I think, that was planted. Yeah. So a shout out to Scotty. We love you, Scotty. When I stopped drinking, I finally came off sleep aids. I mean, I had been on them for... Years. Since 2000, yeah. I, I took sleep aids, and that's basically when I started drinking. So this was like the first time I was in 2018, 18 years that I was able to sleep. So wow. fucked up. Wow. And now you're um, pregnant, so for 18 years, you're not going to be able to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> for the next 18 years, we're fucked. A good fucked. Well, let's lighten things up a little bit here. We got... Um, <laughs> let's lighten, things, let's lighten up. things up here a little bit. I mean, it's still a, a comedy podcast. I'm still categorizing this and tagging this under the, the uh, comedy section. So let's lighten things up a little bit. We got uh, Vimla Sara or Valerie Mason John calling in in a minute here. We're about to get hooked up with her. But in the meantime, I do want to uh, say hello to our fellow podcasts on the NSFW Podcast Network. Great podcast that you should check out like Hood Diner, Plunge Podcast, Simmons and More, hashtag Sam PC, hashtag no offense, Bickerbots, a.k.a. the Bicker Twats, a.k.a. the Bitcherbots. We got Just the Tips, who the fuck knows where they went. So we got a whole bunch of great podcasts for you to go check out on the NSFW Podcast Network. Please go check those fine folks out. Other podcasts that you might enjoy, Man Brain, love you guys. Heavyweight Chumps, love you guys. We'll take a little break here. We'll pause here and uh, we'll play a nice little podcast promo so you guys can... Hear all about this fantastic, wonderful, lovely podcast that I'm sure I listen to every single week. So uh, we will be right back in a moment with Valerie Mason John, a.k.a. The Melisara. Hi, this is Mouse. I'm Weens. And we have the Mouse and Weens podcast. Come listen. We're a couple of sisters. It's great. <laughs> is this the Muppets? Yep. I'm a mom. I'm a kid. <laughs> I'm a mom in San Diego with a bunch of kids. I'm single and alone because I'm an adult baby. Go ahead. Quick. She, she's in Hollywood. All right, she's listen awesome. to us. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. Go. Give 10 seconds. <laughs> Life, love, and pubic hair, people. Come take a listen. See you later. Bye. That's uh, my wife slash co-host, Christina, there. Hi there. Um, Hi. She was actually in the hip sobriety group mm. that ended at the end of last year. Do you prefer Valerie Mason John or do you prefer... Valerie Mason John, a.k.a. the Melissara, because, you know, that's what all my books... My books are written under Valerie Mason John, so I just say Valerie Mason John, a.k.a. the Melissara. Uh, well, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking some time yeah. to speak with us about these, uh, these topics that we're going to dig into today. Sure, definitely. So I guess maybe we should start by figuring out the context for your life's work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your developmental years, your childhood? Okay. My developmental years, my childhood. Well, I have my records. My records say that at six weeks, I was fostered out and I was with one family, if I remember correctly, for 10 months, another family for another year, and then another family. And then at the age of around four and a half, I was with another family and apparently I became a problematic child and I was given medication and I was sent to Dr. Bernardo's, which is a very famous orphanage in the UK, but also is known in Australasia and uh, some parts of Canada and America. So those were my first five years. I went into the Bernardo home and 
I think the thing that would mark me there was that my name was Gruesome. I was called Gruesome. And I knew that it wasn't a nice name, but I didn't exactly know what it meant. But the the staff called me gruesome and so of course the kids called me gruesome as well and the other thing that I would say which marked me was sexual abuse that's when I you know my my first memories of sexual abuse so basically sexual abuse started around the age of six six seven um and that what did it look like I had to kind of masturbate somebody I had to suck their penises blah 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 so that really did mark me and then the other thing is is that actually at the age of nine those house parents left and that was pretty traumatic I can remember us the kids we 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 went off the rail really they left and we didn't have house parents for a while, so we had different house parents coming in and out. And then the next thing that I would say that marked me was at the age of 11, I had to go back and live with my biological mother. It was during the time, so this would have been in the 70s, and basically in the UK, I now live in Canada, but in the UK, it was seen that children should not go into orphanages at a young age and grow up as an adult to the age of 18. And if you knew of any existing family, then let's try and place them back, try and place them back with their parents. So there was this whole era of kids. I always remember like these kids walking across the green because I I grew up in this amazing place at Bernardo's. It was an amazing place for children. It was this village. It was a village for orphans. And so on the front green where the gate was to get out of the village, you would see these kids walking with these cases. And two weeks later, they would be back again because of course there was no preparation and my turn came I suppose it wasn't as dramatic as that I had to start going on uh, weekends about a year before and sometimes my mother would turn up sometimes she wouldn't I used to really try and will her not to turn up and sometimes I was successful and sometimes I wasn't and she had shown violence when I'd go for the weekend she had thrown a carving knife at me already that that the the trigger for that was is like who did I play with I said I played with boys and the next thing a carving knife was at me I managed to dodge it so I had kind of said I didn't want to go and they didn't listen to me. That was a very sad day. I remember that day. It was a very sad day. In fact, I write about that that part of my journey from zero to 16. I have a novel called Borrowed Body. So, and I, so I have a fictionalized uh, story of that, which the book actually did win several awards. It actually beat Joan Didion's Magical Thinking. Take that, Joan Didion. that Joan Didion and so I went back to live with my biological mother I was taken away from my biological mother 18 months later she was taken to court it was a very I can't even 
describe what it was like. I mean, I would say that there was definitely some sadomasochistic practices that happened. Again, I was um, sexually abused and on a sadomasochistic level as well and uh, physically and violently abused. Um, My sister from Sierra Leone came over to join us and that was a hell realm Anyway, I got out of that. The police took me away. She was taken to court. I didn't see her again. And I went back into care at the age of 13 and went completely off the rails. They didn't know where to place me. You know, I started shoplifting, sniffing, shoe conditioner. I'd say shoplifting and shoe conditioner was my first uh, addictive uh, behaviours. Well, actually, I'd say actually sweets when we used to get pocket money in the kids' home, but definitely sniffing shoe conditioner and shoplifting. And uh, I was a runaway kid. And then at the age of 14, 15 I went into children's lock lock up and I was locked up and, and I ended up being locked up from the age of 15 to 17, which actually was a good thing because it turned my life around and I had time to reflect. So that's it in a nutshell, really. I think I've mentioned uh, the salient points there. So we wouldn't call it an idyllic childhood, but it sounds like it put you on a very specific path. Parts of it, this is the thing that parts of it was idyllic, especially growing up in the orphanage. It was amazing growing up in a world of kids, you know, and the adults fed us. I mean, I, I would have told you, you know, if you had interviewed me at the age of like, I don't know, 20, 21, 22, I would have told you I had a happy childhood. Wow. Yeah. Because that's what saved me. I had to, and there were aspects of it which was happy, and that's what saved me. That's what kept me sane. It sounds like you're extremely resilient. <laughs> How would you say that your your relationships are with family these days? You mentioned mother and sister. Um, are they? Do you spill, still speak with them? Are they still in your life in any way? It's definitely a work in progress or work in process. I never saw my biological mother for a long while. And then about 12 years ago, I get back from the States, the days of when we used to have those big answering machines. And it was like, oh my God, oh my God, I think I found my sister. So, and that's another, that is another story, but I won't go go into that. But the point of that was that she came into my life. She was adopted. I had to tell my other sister, I have two other sisters. They wanted me to, they wanted to confront our mother, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't going to go. I wrote this letter. They said, we'll support you in writing this letter. So we went and I read this letter. My my eldest sister was completely gobsmacked because it was like I was telling her story. And she said to me, I can't believe you remember some of that stuff because I part of her story I mean it was part of her story was gruesome Mm. and I said to my biological mother then I don't know whether I'll ever see you again and I think my siblings were jealous that they didn't say anything at the time and and then it ruptured there was a falling out with the one who had been adopted so I always say that our biological Mm. mother got better at giving 
her children away because the eldest was given to the grandmother in Sierra Leone, Freetown. The second one was given to friends and then she came to England. So the second one ended up growing up with her sister, with the grandmother in Freetown. And it seems from the records that she would have been carrying me and pregnant when she left Freetown. I was born in England and I went into foster care and the fourth one was adopted. So she got better at giving them away. It was like, finally, they're not going to come back, but they all did come back to haunt her. (laughs) So what has happened when I moved to Canada, which was about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, there was a lot of distance. And I just thought, well, maybe I just need to reach out to this woman and you know, just see if it's possible to have a relationship. So I did reach out and said, I don't know whether it's possible, but to see if it's possible to have a relationship with her. And it was challenging. And about two or three years ago, she was really fishing for forgiveness. In in African culture, Mm -hmm. forgiveness is a very big thing. Like you're evil, you're wicked is normal language. It's in the vernacular of of Africans. So, you know, if you hear somebody say you're evil, it's not such a huge thing. And forgiveness, get down on your knees and forgive. And and I just thought, well, if that's what she wants is forgiveness, I I will say it. You know, I forgive you if that's going to make it easier easier for you to go to your grave. And then she switched and started to retell my story. Oh my God. And you can hear it in my voice. I can remember the first time it happened, the, the, the heat that rose in me. I mean, it's laughable now. So what if she wants to rewrite my story? But I just realized that I just couldn't be with that. And during that time, she just made it clear that she didn't want to have contact with me or the, or my youngest sister. And that's how it was because we were secrets, you see. The two, the, the, I talk of the English sisters and the African sisters, and and we, the English ones, we were secrets. Nobody knew about us in the in the African community, and that's how she wants it. She's made it clear she doesn't want to be in touch with us. So, for me, my practice is thinking of her with positive and loving kindness because in a way being at peace I thought being at peace with my biological mother meant that I had to be in her life but I realized being at peace is that when I think about her I'm peaceful yeah and I do have a relationship with my sisters oh good I'm a sucker for a happy ending so yeah uh when you were you said you were locked up until about 17 um after that um how did you go about becoming the person who you are today. You found Buddhism at some point, right? How did that happen? Well, I was very fortunate. When I went back into care, I made a strong connection with some of the staff there. And people really saw something in me and really had a belief in me. And, you know, a question that's often been asked was, why you, what was it about you that, got you to this place today. And I really do think that I was fortunate that I grew up in orphanages where I had routine. I knew where my food was coming from. I knew where my clothes were coming from. I never had to worry about money. And so I did have this real fractured, torturous, 
hell realm time for 18 months with my biological mother but it was sure yeah I had the normal stuff abuse blah 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 I'm, I'm sorry to say it's normal but you know in this society abuse is so normalized we just don't speak about it but when I came out I had somebody who I met in the assessment center who offered to foster me and give me a home and she had a lot of people mm. who were saying you shouldn't do it blah 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 but she really um I don't know she had this heart response towards me and that's I'd say it's really sad because actually she's not really in my life I mean it's not like we don't talk to each other I she has her own family now and you know one of the kids I connect with but mm. I wanted more of a relationship with her and she wasn't able to give it to me she gave me what she could do and I have to appreciate so, that mm. so she gave me a step up she gave me a home I went to college I did my O levels. I left actually to say that I fell in love with a woman in this children's lockup, children's postal, as it was called. I fell in love with a woman, a woman called Christine, and who was one of the postal officers. And we ended up having a sexual relationship. She was 16, 17 years my senior. Mm. Uh, I mean, now, I mean, I just think, oh my God, <laughs> like how, where was I? How mm -hmm. great, you know, and the impact that that had on her relationship. I went to live with her. She had a, a daughter, the impact that must have had on the daughter, the impact that it had on the husband. I, you mm. know, uh, yes. Yeah, so I have to ask for forgiveness for that. But I'd say that the love that, Carol, my foster mother, gave me and the love that I experienced. It was the first time I ever experienced love. I I only knew resentment, hatred. I spent years as a child wanting to be held, wanting to be loved, sitting there, wishing somebody would hug me and hold me, really wishing, and it never happened. And, and so in this sexual relationship, I got that. I, I loved to madness. As I say, I was Eustacia, the queen of the night in the book Return of the Native. So it sounds like you had a, a bit of a mix, I guess, from zero to 20. I mean, it sounds like you have some some good things that you can look back on in childhood. It's not, it wasn't totally dreary. I mean, you actually sound like you have some good memories of uh, the foster home, the village and the grounds and stuff there. But there was also this abuse mixed in and you speak of it as if you say it's kind of normal. I mean, it's at least in, in that particular life. I mean, do you feel like, um, you'd be who you are today if things hadn't turned out like that? I mean, if what I say is, is that I don't need you to sometimes be so oh, I'm glad I had this because it's made me who I am. And I, I look around and I see some people who didn't have, you know, a fifth of what I had and they it's made them who they are so who knows I mean obviously it it has definitely it, it did shape me I but I'm not a product of my conditioning I have really released a lot of those stories and a lot of those traumas yes I did try to take my life at the 
first at the age of around 13 when I went back into care and then again I don't know, at the age of 15 and then again at the age of 18 when I entered into this relationship. And of course, I had a chronic eating disorder. I was anorectic bulimic and I was diagnosed as an extreme chronic bulimic. So... I think in one of your videos, you'd mentioned throwing up some something like 40 times a day. Oh, my oh yeah. And that was when I was keeping a record, when I had to start keeping a record. So God knows how many times I was doing it when I wasn't keeping a record. Nothing. Oh. I didn't allow anything to, to stay down. And part of that, I realize now when I began to step onto the path of recovery that I was purging the filth out of me. Definitely the sexual abuse, definitely the the thing of having to, to suck penises, definitely purging that filth out of me, definitely. Uh, I was that, that young kid going up to be abused ag- again. And I mean, and also as well, the self, self-hatred, like it's interesting how self-hatred is so tied up in, in, in a sexual abuse because, mm. you know, with my biological mother, it was just once, I mean, the sadomasochistic practices were different and that that happened more than once but just the once when at one point I had to share the bed and she I I actually wrote a poem about it but she actually touched me in the bed and that was the first time that I would ever experience any uh, say love or tenderness from this woman and I I don't know a day after I mean there was she just beat the crap out of me and was stamping on my head and spitting in my face and scrubbing my head in the floor and stamping on the head. And I could never understand like what this person who had this hatred towards me. And then when I did some EMDR, which I totally recommend for people who have trauma which they can isolate EMDR is brilliant and when I did some work around it and that's quite recent this was about seven or eight years ago I could see that actually in her same moment she could not cope or come to couldn't couldn't acknowledge or accept that she had abused this this kid in that way and wanted to annihilate it wanted to destroy it I mean there were other things like she'd actually when I say that I actually she did touch me in other ways and whatever but that was the the a really defining moment in that bed but again I want to say with that so that it is possible to release those stories and not be a product of of all of that really we don't yeah. you know in a way it's like did it shape me it did shape me those things did shape me which is why I was a chronic anorectic bulimic which is why you know I took a lot of recreational drugs and was into champagne and you know I had a very high powered job but I was a functional uh, addict if you if we use that label so it did shape me and, and I lived life in the fast lane and I didn't really 
want to turn towards that experience. But I, how did Buddhism come into my life? I'd say meditation. Yeah, came into my life because I was part of the women's movement and in England in the women's movement that's where a lot of consciousness raising happened you know that's where I was introduced to two books one around sexual abuse and that's when I realized when which was giving me a language people would talk talk about sexual abuse and think oh that happened to me you know was it surprising that other people had undergone that no, it was more like it kind of normalized it. It 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 took it out of well in a way it made me turn towards my own experience. Actually, it's a bit like, oh, that happened to me. What do you do with that? Okay. They're talking about my life here and that's something which you just tend to block off. When was the women's movement that you mentioned? About what year was that? That would have been eighty five, eighty six 87 involved with the women's movement although i i went in 88 i went out to australia and worked as an international correspondent i was 25 then in 88 were those kind of your your life in the fast lane years there when you were in your your young to mid 20s i yeah i mean they lasted right into my 30s because i ended up being the artistic director of London Mardi Gras Arts. So I helped produce one of the biggest parties in the UK at that time. You know, that was Pride, which became Mardi Gras. So, you know, introduced Mm -hmm. the champagne tents, like, you know, and that was definitely working with the agents of people like Leo DiCaprio, Elton John, you know, working with the Monopoly the gay world of the Monopoly board, basically. So I was very much in a fast lane, but I was doing part of that recovery. I trained in mime and physical theatre. I was performing. That's when I really got in touch with my childhood and realized, God, how sad and depressing it was. But coming back to that women's movement, there were people who meditated. I had a friend who went out with somebody who meditated and I would always ask my friend questions about what do they do? What do they do? And we used to laugh and we used to say, oh yeah, that's what the good girls do. They go off and meditate and we go off and party. (laughs) That was literally it. Now I'm okay. I'm one of the good girls who go off and meditate. So Mm -hmm. it, it, it was there for me. So I was very fortunate. And, and I think actually my time in Bolstal, I tapped into yoga and meditation. I mean, I did a lot of solitary confinement and you naturally go into meditative states. So there was a part of me that wanted to learn to meditate. And when I did, when I had that opportunity, it was amazing. It was just, it was transformative. The first time I meditated, it it was, my voice changed. I, yeah my whole state was altered and I knew that I had found something in a way it became my new drug, you know, and, and, uh, it definitely became my new drug meditation. And, and then I started taking Guruana and African cola nut instead of taking the recreational drugs. And I would say meditation probably is a better drug to choose than mm-hmm. cocaine for all of my listeners out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Hugs, not drugs, folks. Definitely. And meditation's a hell of a drug. Definitely. If your fortunes have beginner's mind, because I do want to say to the listeners out there, you may start meditating and it could be really traumatic and really difficult because some difficult stuff can come up. But there are those of us where it's like we are just catapulted into bliss land. I mean, I'd never experienced bliss and contentment in that way and so I was sold so basically I would go on retreat to get high I would go on retreat to have a trip I can remember the millennium and all my mates saying this is the party they're going to and this party and the drugs they're going to take and I said I'm going on retreat for three weeks forget it you know Um, I am speaking for the U.S. at least because I haven't been to the U.K. but a lot of folks here suburban housewives, soccer moms who, uh, they get, they get bit by the yoga bug. They go to a few yoga classes, but you went as far as, uh, becoming ordained in Chiratna Buddhism, correct? Yes. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You did, Chiratna. Yeah. Chiratna. Okay. I'll edit out my, my fumbling with the pronunciation of that. Chiratna (laughs) Buddhism. So you, you took it pretty far though. I mean, not everybody will go to that level of of commitment to this practice yes it's i think there was a point i came into my life where i just thought i'm kidding myself if i say that these buddhist teachings aren't having an impact on me i say yeah and i i realized i just wanted to take it deeper and it often offered community as well like it was during that time when the women's movement was fragmenting it was during the time of thatcher which was getting rid of all the community spaces during the time of the poll tax riots and our spaces were going the women's centers were going the even the safe homes for battered women was going the spaces for lesbian gay centers were going and community was becoming fragmented and here i'd found this new community that meditated and there were many queer people in that community well then it was lesbian and gay we didn't use the word so much queer then and it changed my life one doesn't meditate to be happy one meditates to transform themselves that's the purpose of meditation is transformation and i must add that i got to a point where i realized well yeah i'm having these great experiences and being blissed out i'd go on retreat be blissed out and then i'd go home and i'd relapse into my bulimia and everything else and nothing much was changing but when i began to integrate some of the buddhist teachings something in my life began to change and uh, the whole practice of Buddhism is seen through the illusion of your backstory, is seen through your childhood story. Because every time I tell my story, it's different, every single time. And to see through the illusion of that, to see actually this is story, it's not fact. To, to let go of any identification with the stories, with the labels, it sounds like an acknowledgement of the subjectivity of our memories almost. So you don't go back and relive it really, but you you kind of, you have new thoughts about it 
uh, because you're a different person at 30 than you are at 20 and you're a different person at 40 than you are at 30. Exactly. If I've made myself clear. I, yeah, you have. I, I mean, I always know that when I wrote my novel, if I had written it 10 years earlier, it would have been a completely different novel because it would have been written through the filter and stories that I held on to at that time. So in a way, coming back to that's how I got into Buddhism and went for refuge, as we say, and ordained into a tradition and I'm a senior teacher in that tradition and ordained people into that tradition. But Buddhism became something different for me. It wasn't about my practice and about my transformation. It was about other people's transformation. My my life changed and I the the practice of mindfulness because not everybody wants to become a Buddhist but people are interested in mindfulness and that's what really saved my life really were the mindfulness teachings and I was writing books at that time I'd written several books and my publisher had asked me was there another book that I wanted to write and coming to Christina asking you know how did I get to to this point of working in this field of addiction. I was actually teaching a Buddhist teaching called the Four Reminders, which you reflect on your precious birth. You reflect on death is unavoidable. You reflect on actions have consequences and you reflect on the ocean of samsara, just the ocean of suffering and just how things are limited. And it was the first one, this precious birth that I was asking my students to reflect on. And if I do that, I must reflect on it myself. And I just... Although I'd heard this teaching many times, it was like, well, why is this birth precious? And if this birth is precious, why do I want to live so much? And the answers I kept on coming to or the conclusion I kept on coming to was so ego identified. It was all about the things I need to do, the things that I haven't done. So then I thought, well, if my birth is precious, why... Why, do, why don't I want to die? And again, it was the same thing. I got these things to do. I'm not ready. It was just all ego identified, which was fine. So I just realized I couldn't get to the nub of it. And I don't know, maybe a week later, I'm walking along the road and there's this voice that says, what you have to offer is your recovery. And I was like, oh, I instantly had an aversion to that. It was like, oh, I'm not interested in that. But knowing knowing that when you have an aversion to something, that's the place you need to turn towards. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe a few months later, publishers said, do you have a book? And I just thought, well, yeah, I could share my recovery. And I invited a psychiatrist, uh, somebody who is a specialist in alcohol and addictions and who was in my tradition. And we wrote this book and that was it. That was it. After writing, most, a lot of authors will tell you, you write a book and you put it down and you move on to the next. This book, I have not been able to move on to the next. It, it's, it's, it's like I'm married to it.
This book you mentioned is the eight-step recovery. Yeah, eight-step recovery using the Buddha's teachings to overcome addiction. I think this is a perfect time to uh, touch on that topic because, you know, you mentioned the the practice not being about you, but being about uh, helping others and then authoring this book. I understand that this is uh, kind of a complementary alternative to a more traditional 12-step program or AA? Definitely. It's, it complements or it could be an alternative. Definitely. I feel like, you know, eight steps versus 12, I definitely like fewer steps. I mean, fewer steps, it sounds, <laughs> sounds, sounds better to me. Like, Hey, it's four steps. I don't got to worry about. I, th- I feel like we were, we were just already on that topic. So it's a, a really great time to talk about how did those Buddhist teachings that you became so steeped in, how did those help you to overcome addiction and um you know like what's what's the value for any of my listeners who feel like they need help with overcoming their own well what i would say is that buddhism is perhaps the oldest recovery program that we know because buddhism is all about recovering from addictive behaviors in fact the the first uh the first discourse that the Buddha gave, the Buddha said that there is addiction to head to hedonism, which is lowly, coarse, and unprofitable, and there is addiction to asceticism and self-mortification, which is lowly, coarse, and unprofitable. And what we need is the middle way. So and and also i also want to say what's really interesting that dr bob the co-founder of 12 steps alcoholics anonymous in a booklet called milestones he actually writes that actually that the noble eightfold path could literally be an alternative to the 12 step program or a complement he was writing that in the 40s and 50s can you believe that? Yeah. yeah. And he was writing that in the 40s and 50s. Wow. Of course, because Buddhism has been seen as a religion, then everybody gets a bit frightened because it's this this religion. Really, Buddhism, and that's what caught me, it teaches you how to live your life. It teaches you how to live your life. I'll repeat that again. Buddhism teaches you how to live your life. You can take it as a religion. And of course, me being ordained into a tradition, I've obviously accepted the religious aspect of it. But actually, there's a big part. It's, it's just how to live your life. And you hear people like the Dalai Lama and people like Thich Nhat Hanh who specifically say, you can live these teachings and you don't have to be a Buddhist. In fact, they encourage not to convert. Be a Christian and live these teachings. Be a Muslim and live these live, live these teachings. Be a Hindu or a Jew and live these teachings. So my work now is how to make these teachings accessible. And I've made these teachings accessible by co-founding a program called Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery, which is a second generation of mindfulness-based relapse prevention. We just wanted to focus more on the recovery aspect rather than on the the relapse aspect because relapse is part of many people's recovery and we didn't want to see it's like let's prevent relapse actually acknowledge it's part of the recovery 
and also my next book because this book has the word Buddhism on it. Many people say we love we love your book, but we can't take it into work because it's got the word Buddhism on. I'm actually working on a new book which is called Addiction and Invitation. I know yourself through mindfulness because I really want to make these teachings far more accessible. But mm-hmm. saying that, coming back to the eight-step program, which what is great is, is that with the eight-step program, that there are eight-step meetings. They're not, you know, they're not like 12 steps, but slowly they are increasing and multiplying and they run in the same way 12 steps does we didn't reinvent the wheel the format of 12 steps work we're just using a similar format but we're using uh, content from buddhism mm-hmm. and there are meetings in north america including mexico there are meetings in europe spain finland england there are meetings in india and there are meetings in new zealand I think we're in a very interesting time with recovery. I mean, I should mention refuge recovery because refuge recovery, I'd say, is out there leading with Buddhist recovery. They have about 665 refuge recovery meetings all over the world. But there is heart of the recovery, which is Buddhist recovery. But what's exciting is is that we've moved into a time where there's all these different approaches to recovery. We have she recovery, we have hip sobriety recovery, we have non-secular recovery, we have 12 steps, we have Buddhist recovery. So it's a very, very exciting time for recovery because once upon a time, the only thing that was out there for people was 12 steps, Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, my impression, at least, of of the milieu of of opportunities out there for recovery is that they're not mutually exclusive. It's kind of a buffet. You can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they don't they don't clash. So it's it's actually really expanding. Uh, like you were just saying, it's expanding the options for someone who needs this recovery. They have so much more to choose from. It's like whatever speaks to you. That's yeah. what comes up for me. Mm. Definitely. I mean, it's it's like we talk about we have these different learning types and so you have to teach differently. So we need different recovery programs for different learning types. Mm-hmm. I, I can totally appreciate that because, um, you know, some people that I've spoken with really have a hard time with the higher power and somewhat Christian overtones of Alcoholics Anonymous, but they may be a little bit more open to even something that um, has the word Buddha on the cover, such as your book. Which is why, again, that some even the word Buddha will get in the way with some people. Like you, you know, people with addictions, anything can get in the way of your recovery. I often say, don't let God get in the way of your recovery. Don't let the <laughs> word Buddha get in the way of your recovery. Which is why I'm writing this secular, this new secular book, and I hope this time I'm not rushing to find a publisher because I really want to find a more mainstream publisher to get this book out into the mainstream. It sounds like the eight-step recovery, um, it sounds like uh, overlaps with the mindful, mindfulness-based addiction recovery mm. that you all also offer. 
Is that kind of a text that you refer to during the MBAR, or are these things kind of distinct? No, they do. They do. Over, they definitely do overlap. When I do train the trainer to train people up to deliver the MBAR, the great. You got the acronym completely correct. When I when I do the train the trainer for the MBAR. Part of the training is, is that we do demo an eight-step recovery meeting just because lots of people, you know, who, who work in the field of recovery are looking for alternative kinds of meetings. So it, it's, it's about 10% of what the course is, but definitely we do demo a meeting. I mean, I don't go through the content of the book. I, I do refer people to the book, but the main part of the MBAR is really looking at the mindfulness teachings in terms of coming back home to the body, becoming aware of the body. If we become aware of the body and we become aware of feelings, the body produces feelings and feelings will activate thoughts. And how does one begin to interrupt thoughts? And this is what we're teaching people in this MBAR program, really showing them what happens when they step on to that vicious cycle of addiction when they get activated and they're on automatic pilot and they're going around and around in that vicious cycle and really beginning to look at those facilitated thoughts, those depressive thoughts, the downer thoughts, and really, really, I mean, the the crux of the ember is about turning towards your experience and becoming aware of feeling tone in the body because that's where the early warning signs are and if we can become aware of the early warning signs we may be able to interrupt interrupt a relapse interrupt a slip and the mbar is a cognitive therapy correct yeah the mbar it does definitely have some cognitive behavior therapy in it and a lot of mindfulness it's got loving kindness so at the moment i'm actually i have three online courses running concurrently at 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 the moment two in english and one in spanish and it's a it's a four-week online intensive for people who have lived experience of addiction in recovery wanting to do something different with their recovery just like christina did hip sobriety some people come along and do the mbar the mbar also the online can also be seen as part of the training to do train the trainer so i do have trainers at the moment so there are people out there in the world who deliver the eight-week course it is an eight-week course face to face but more and more people are wanting something online so as i say this this course is online and it's four weeks. So given the uh, the vast amount of options that people who want to recover, I'll just say addicts who are looking for uh, recovery, since they have so many options now, um, where would you recommend that they get started? I mean, it, it. I guess when you have a lot of options, sometimes it's like deer in headlights and you get kind of like, oh, where, where do I start? It's a really great question. And I would say, where do you, where does one start? Ask for help. That's the place to, mm-hmm. to start with is actually ask for help. That, that would be the place. And when you ask for help, see where that takes you. And then I would say that there is a lot out there. So just as they say in rooms of 12 steps, try maybe five meetings 
before you say, ah, this isn't working for me. So it's not like, oh, I go to one, I, I didn't like that, I go to another, stick with something. Yeah, give it a chance to stick. Yeah, give it definitely give it a chance to stick. And then also to say that it's okay if you mix and match your program. I mean, I have people who have been in 12 steps for 10, 15 years and we do an eight-step recovery meeting because that's their 11th step. And so they mm. do the eight-step just to get their 11th step. So sometimes I joke and I say, well, the 11th step has become eight steps now. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's 20 steps now. Exactly. Or would it be 19? Yeah, it would be 20 steps, math. eight and 12. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't uh, taken a math class since the 90s. I'm no good at math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call it arithmetic. You were good at arithmetic, but no good. You mentioned the word joke and that I guess my second to last question is, does the Buddha have a sense of humor? Oh, yes. Of course, uh, the Buddha has a a sense of humor. I like to think so. He's always laughing in all the statues I I see every time I go to a Chinese restaurant. Happy guy. Yeah, Mm. he looks thrilled. Yeah. I've got a little, uh, I have a Buddha statue that I keep at my desk and I made sure to get a positive one. He's grinning real big, like he enjoys my podcast or something. Yeah. Just the last thing I got for you is where can listeners find you if they want to get in touch with uh, you via socials or if they want to um, maybe check out some of your work or even get signed up for mindfulness-based addiction recovery? Sure. So one of the first things that I would say is check out Insight Timer. It's a fantastic resource, has over... 5,000 more teachers, meditation and mindfulness teachers on it. And all the meditations are free. Are you on there? Yeah, I am. Oh, I have that app on my phone. I am. And so they've just created a new track called Courses, which you pay for. But they're like $5, five US dollars. And I have a course on there called Breaking the Vicious Cycle of Addiction. Mm-hmm. So I really encourage the listeners to check out my course called Breaking the Vicious Cycle of Addictions. It's 10 sessions and it's self-directed and it's a really great course and I unpick this vicious cycle of addiction. Secondly, if you want to find out about my books and what I'm doing is go to my website, which is valerie.mason-john dot com or you could find me at eight step recovery dot com that might be easier and then my website will come up eight eight step recovery or eight steps recovery dot com and that will give you a list of my books like I have a book called detox your heart meditation on emotional trauma which is a great book to 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 read I suppose it's a it's basically the eight step is a sequel to the the detox your heart mm-hmm. Those would be those would be the the places to check me out and my email. You can join my mailing list. I have a mailing list, and you can email me. My email is there, and yeah, that's how to get hold of me. Well, fantastic. So what I should also say is as well that I do a lot of public speaking. So if you want me to do some public speaking, come to your conference, etc., then reach out to me. Excellent. And they can reach out to you on your website for public speaking opportunities. Definitely. There's a there, there's definitely a functionality there where you can book me for 
public speaking or for workshops, for training, etc. Uh, well, awesome. I really appreciate your time. I mean, these are kind of heavy topics for our podcast, but I think it's important stuff to talk about. When I found your your website and when I heard you speak at the Hip Sobriety uh, meeting, it just I want listeners to hear this stuff as well. And uh, for people who are struggling with addiction to, to get the help that they need to be more healthy and, and be more happy. Great. It's great to be part of the recovery tribe. That's where we're, we're this tribe out there. And it's good for us to know who we are. I mean, I'm really waiting for somebody to, to put that conference together, to bring us all together, you know. But I have a question for Christina. How did you find hip sobriety? Um, I was... I was just looking online for just anything that spoke to me and I found Holly's um, her website. And so I started kind of glancing at it and I really appreciated her approach and her voice and just, um, I loved it. And then um, I start, I got sober and I was struggling. And so then I was like, I need some support. So then I took the dive in, signed up for her class and was very excited I did. Mm. But yeah, I just found her through searching and like I said, spoke to me. Great. And you got a lot from it. Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was it was refreshingly unique and not what I what I thought was available. So I was so excited to see that. And I think it's um, true that, you know, there's a reason we're all we fall down that path of addiction. And so, you know, the joy and figuring out why, understanding why I, I go to the alcohol and the different layers of um, kind of like education was really helpful. Mm. So it was great. And the support, I loved all the support. Mm. That was huge too. Yeah, the support seemed really huge. Yeah, it, mm. it was. Oh. Mm. Whereabouts are you based, the two of you? We live in New Hampshire, uh, which is, we're just uh, about an hour north of Boston. Yeah, I know where New Hampshire is, is because one of my Buddhist centers is there, Aria Loka. Oh, you're oh, kidding. Oh, I'm going to have to jot yeah. that down. I'm going to have to go pay them a visit. Aria Loka, I'll tell you what the actual address is, but they're definitely in, hold on. So there's a, they have a center in Portsmouth. As well. Oh my goodness! Oh my that's, we work in Portsmouth. Yeah, that's twenty yeah, minutes. Yeah, from yeah, that. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I very much appreciate your time. We're we're at just over an hour, so I shall uh, I shall let you go. But I do yeah. really appreciate chatting with you. And um, yeah, no, thank you. Keep the good work up, both of you. Thanks Likewise. you as well. <laughs> All right. All right. Good night. Take care. Bye. Calm down, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down, bro. And we are back. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was educational. Intent. And yeah, it was actually a little bit more even intense than I than I thought. But mm-hmm. I'm really glad that we had the conversation with her because, you know, it's, uh, it's obviously educational. It's always nice to talk to somebody who goes through some serious shit. Because mm-hmm. you listen to her talk about her childhood. And I think, God damn, like... I didn't get Reebok pumps for Christmas in 1991. I ain't got no fucked up childhood. Mm-hmm. I missed out on the Reebok pumps in 1991. That's my fucking complaint about childhood. I, know. I wasn't. Um, but you put things into perspective. Really does put things into perspective. I mean, it's so off from like what. It's such a different experience. Yeah. You know, it's trying to put things into perspective. I feel like that doesn't respect the 
hardships she went through compared to the lack of hardships that we experience. So it's just like, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. Does it kind of surprise you that she is, I feel like she's very cool right now. Mm -hmm. Like just a, I guess cool is the right word to, to say that she does seem to have subscribed to the Buddhist philosophy of letting go. It doesn't seem, I mean, it seems like she's still in touch with her past because that kind of, that was her journey. I, it doesn't seem like her past is like a burden or a weight on her in that way. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't seem that she's still upset about these things. She she can talk about them. I mean, she never at any point was like, fuck these people or got heated or anything like that. I mean, it was, yeah. I guess it was incredible that she could just talk about it so dispassionately and kind of almost yeah. clinically, almost. For me, like it, it's like you can tell it has shaped her. Yeah. Like you can tell she has this very strong presence. And I think that is part of how she has survived and come out of those experiences. Subscribing to Buddhism was a really important piece to her mm-hmm. healing. For sure. And I feel like she's she's had a lot of healing, but I feel like there's still... I feel like you can hear the edge of, you know, the pain or the presence. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't sound like those experiences have or will ever escape her. They're fully who she is, but she is so strong and powerful yeah. living above it. Like it's not something that's holding her back. She's living with her past, but you can still hear it in yeah, her voice. For sure. You know, you just said a moment ago, it doesn't seem to be holding her back or holding her down. And I actually think, if anything, it's propelling her forward in in the path that she is on currently. I mean, the, in in it may have prevented her path from going in certain ways, but it did, in terms of of Buddhism uh, and of addiction recovery, and the the type of things that she now does professionally, it almost seems to have pushed her forward. I mean, it may have even helped her a little bit, and that's sort of what I was kind of asking, where it's like. You know, you describe a childhood like hers and you think, holy fuck, like our kid. I mean, imagine our kid going through some shit like that. You know, like, holy fuck. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't wish that Mm -mm. on anybody. You wouldn't wish that on baby Hitler to go through that shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's still hard to like fully. Maybe Hitler. I know, maybe Hitler. Maybe Hitler, but. It's fully, it's hard to fully wrap your mind around. Yeah. I want to encourage everybody once again go check her out. Go check out our website, Valerie Mason John. Dot com. She has several books. She does. She has several books. She has like eight books. I think she said that they have. She has like a teaches a class, or yes. she has that. Um, it's the MBAR class. That's yeah. the mindfulness based addiction recovery uh, class, and so that's um, something that you can look I'm into as well. I'm interested in that. Yeah, um, that may be a good resource for you guys, and I want to encourage you to check it out. Or also, if if anybody. Thinks they're they're struggling and even wants to hit me up. You can always email us. Yeah, yeah. You can reach out to us, Jason.alme, A-L-M-E, at teamalme.com. You can tweet us at S-H-W-Y-P-N. Uh, you can get in touch with us. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're happy to talk about real shit, too. You know, there's a serious side of life as well. I'm actually having some bubble guts from eating gluten. You're having bubble guts from eating gluten. Thank you. Did you? I think. Um, I think the shout outs got the shout it. Shout outs intensified were, it a little were bit. Intensifying. Would you like to excuse yourself while I complete my shout outs? Okay.
I don't know if I'm going to edit that out or not. It's terrible. <laughs> trying to be a fucking professional over here. I'm trying to fuck with you. Uh, you, you do such a wonderful job. You do job. such a good you job. Do such a wonderful job. Anyway, motherfuckers, we'll be back next week with some more bullshit. I think we have a lovely chat with our friends Randall and Brooke from the Married as Fuck podcast that uh, we will be looking forward to next week as well. So be on the lookout for that. We'll holla at you later, fools. Bye. Bye. I'm rising out the ashes. See way that comes to my face. A giant walking ball of blind love turned to hate. All the feelings always kept me down in dirt turned to rage. Grab a rapper by his head and spread him up like a page. I'm amazing. Like yay was on 808s and heartbreaks. So my ex cry when I make it. I ain't got no tolerance and I ain't got no patience. And that ain't gonna change so bad again.